When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. The Project Upland podcast is brought to you in part by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Adventure awaits. What's up, everybody? Nick Larson with the Project Upland podcast. Welcome back to the show for episode number 28. It's all about grouse dogs today, English setters and English pointers. But first, as always, we are brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, where adventure awaits you. Check them out, pineridgegrousecamp.com. Gumleaf Boots, gumleafusa.com. Go there, check out their fine selection of natural rubber boots. Super high quality, super comfortable. They keep your feet dry no matter where you go. Check them out. Gumleaf Boots, gumleafusa.com. Use promo code PU2018, PU2018 for free shipping from gumleafusa.com. And we have this week's winner of the Project Upland Gear Giveaway. This week, the winner is Matt Kadlabowski. Matt Kadlabowski. I think I got that right. You can remind me. I will contact you as soon as I'm done recording this and ask you what you would like from the Project Upland store, which you can check out at projectupland.com. Click on the shop link. And you could be next week's winner of the Project Upland Gear Giveaway. All you have to do is simply like the podcast post, subscribe to our podcast. The subscribe one is is really important. We appreciate when you subscribe. That improves our numbers and it allows us to reach more people, which we want to do. 
subscribe, share, rate, and review. We thank all of you for doing that. And we reward one of you each week with our weekly Project Up and Gear giveaway. That's all I got for you. Let's jump into today's interview, which is a very good one. I very much enjoyed talking to our guest, probably because I am a little biased. I do own a dog that I purchased from him out of his kennel. He is an English setter and he is from Northwoods Bird Dogs, which is owned and operated by Jerry and Betsy Coulter in Sandstone, Minnesota. Jerry has been breeding English setters and English pointers for quite some time. He is very knowledgeable. He spends his falls guiding grouse and woodcock hunting in northern Minnesota. He then transitions down to Georgia where he works dogs, trains dogs, works on bobwhite quail down in Georgia. And it's a year-round thing. It's a lifestyle and a business for Jerry and his wife, Betsy. They are great people, and I really, really enjoyed having this conversation with Jerry because he is incredibly knowledgeable about not only his English setters and pointers, but about grouse dogs in general, which is really where our conversation focused. That's all I'm going to say. Stay tuned for more. Let's get into the Project Upland podcast and welcome Jerry Coulter. Jerry Coulter of Northwoods Bird Dogs. Welcome to the Project Upland podcast. How are you this evening? I'm doing great. Uh, thank you for having me. It is, it is my pleasure to have you on, Jerry. I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you. Uh, we've, been, we've been emailing back and forth a little bit, and I know you just got back to Minnesota from Georgia. You, you and Betsy are, are very smart, and you, uh, you decide to spend the winters down in Georgia, but, but that's kind of a dual purpose. So I, I have to ask, is the, is the trip to Georgia more for the weather or more for the dogs? Uh, I mean, we're fortunate that it's kind of for both, you know, uh, some people go south for, for the winter for vacation or, but I mean, we have to work and actually it, it just works out better that way. Um, we can work dogs all winter down there where up here, you know, we couldn't no way. So it's more for business, but even if we do a little less business, we'll still be going there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's uh, from what you've told me, it sounds sounds like a, a very nice place to spend uh, spend a few months. And we had a we had a we had a pretty good winter up here, and and a very late spring that kind of threw a wrench in in uh, spring training for a lot of people. But it's uh, the way of the North Country for sure. Um, mm-hmm. So so let's let's before we kind of dive into the meat of it what uh, how how was Georgia for you this year and you know kind of what's your what's your main purpose while you're down there Um I mean mainly we train you know we train dogs down there but we also have a kennel where we can whelp litters um actually this year we whelp most of our litters down there um and then we we work on a private plantation and I decide the dogs that we have down there for training. We train uh, some of their dogs during the winter, some of their young dogs while they're busy doing their, their plantation hunts. We just work the young dogs. So that's our main, that's kind of what we do. Yeah. And, and are you on now? I think you mentioned before we were chatting a little bit that you are on wild birds. Is it, is it, you know, wild, wild bobwhite quail. And then is it supplemented too, or how does that work? It's all, it's all wild quail. I mean, it's kind of a little bit of a secret. I'd say there's, um, an area from probably Albany, Georgia, down to Mont, down to, um, Tallahassee, Florida. It's called the Red Hills region. 
and um, there's they're all private plantations. I mean, so you you know you just can't get on them. But I mean, they're exclusively managed for wild quail. I mean, I'd say some of them might supplement, but I'd say 90% of them manage wild birds. I mean, they they feed year round. They they burn in the spring, you know, they, they mow it in the fall, in the fall. So you, so the birds are more accessible to the dogs and there's less briars. I mean, they kind of go by, there's an organization down there called tall timbers and, um, they do a lot of quail research and they kind of do whatever they say to do, but it's all wild birds. Okay. Excellent. So, so yeah, that's obviously, that is, that's a nice, nice bonus for you in that, in that for, you know, a really, really good chunk of the year, you are able to run and train your dogs on, on wild birds, whether they're, whether they're grouse, woodcock or, or quail. And, and I know you, you go out West too and run on sharp tails, don't you? Um, we, I used to, but now I just, I just stay locally and run on the local sharp tails around here. I mean, it, it's a big deal, right? I mean, we start wild birds with sharp tails about August 1st and we wrap up the wild quail probably at the end of March, middle of April. So yeah, it, it makes a big difference. It, it's, it's what really makes our, that's how we evaluate our dogs, right? Our future breeding dogs and things like that. It's, it's wild birds that separate them. So. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's the, your, your method, which I'm familiar with certainly uh, a little bit, at least I've got a dog from you, but, uh, maybe, maybe news to some of the listeners. So I guess with that segue, let's, let's kind of rewind a little bit and talk about, sort of your history as either 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 or an upland bird hunter or a dog trainer what what really came first was it the was it the birds or was it the dogs yeah, it was actually the birds um i kind of grew up um hunting in, in a small town called henderson minnesota in the minnesota river valley and uh, i hunted and trapped and things that i uh, didn't have a dog um but i mean i hunted pheasants just you know you'd walk them up and things like that um but when I got when I was about fourteen or fifteen, a high school teacher of mine had two English setters, and he uh, one of them would get loose every now and again, and I'd bring it back to him, and um, <laughs> we ended up being good friends. And he was a teacher too, so I mean I knew him that way. But um, he basically took took me to go out some woodcock hunting. We'd drive from southern Minnesota to leave early on a Saturday morning, and we'd go up to the Rum River State Forest and just hunt for the day, and turn around and drive back. And um, he had one really really good English setter then, and that was kind of what kind of what started it for me very cool very cool you kind of answered the question i, I was going to ask you you know with all of your with all of your experience training and and breeding dogs now what uh what were those what were those first dogs like that you hunted if you can remember back i, I, I would imagine you have some fond memories of that um yeah it was kind of funny because he had two dogs one um that was a little bigger dog not a uh, rhyme it was a regular field setter but he was maybe 55 57 pounds a little slower moving and he had another one that that basically just it ran and ran and ran and he and we ended up not hunting that one very much but he always said that one was a field trial dog um so looking back i kind of chuckle on that and maybe it was you know um, <laughs> yeah but the other dog was a real good dog Real good dog, and he was a natural retriever. It's funny because he was the first dog I saw that if you shot a bird in water, or even in the Minnesota River, if you shot a rooster over the river and it fell in the middle and swam to the other side, that dog would go to retrieve it. But if you shot a bird and it fell dead 40 yards away on the dry ground, he'd just look at you and say, hey, you get it. <laughs> oh, wow. That's that's a smart dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
So okay, so so you started you started hunting first, and and you did get early exposure to English setters, which is which is one of the dogs that you now breed. So I guess I guess take us take us briefly through you know that that first exposure to kind of did you stick with upland upland hunting kind of throughout your your you know your teenage years and your young adult, and then and then how did you wind up wind up with you know breeding and and Northwoods bird dogs where you are today? Um, you know, I, I hunted with that teacher probably through my high school years and, um, then I graduated from high school and I went to Brainerd Votech for natural resources. Um, and we rented a house, um, me and a couple other guys. And the first thing I did when I got up there in September was buy a, a Brittany puppy. So, um, and it just happened to be there. I'd actually looked at Brittany's quite a bit and read the, read the books and, um, I was originally, when I was a kid, I got in a falconry, um, which lasted a long time, but, um, and one of the doggies that they always talked about in one of these falconry, early falconry books was Brittany Spaniels. And I think that's what got me going, but I just bought out of the paper 35 bucks and she wasn't a great dog naturally, but I mean, I hunted her so much that she ended up being, you know, really, really good dog. Not so much on grouse, but on pheasant, she was really good. Yeah. So, so, okay. So, so you, you started off with a Brittany when you were, when you were up in Brainerd and, and then when did the, when did the transition take place that, that led you to, to English setters and, and Northwoods bird dogs? I mean, I, I guess I assume this, but I don't know. Did, did Northwoods bird dogs start with English setters right from the very beginning? Um, I actually had setters and pointers you know, by the time we got going with Northwoods bird dogs. Um, okay. After that, Brittany, I kind of, you know, I, I went to school in Mankato for a computer programming and that kind of changed the course of things for a while. Cause I was working in the twin cities. Um, and I, that Brittany kind of got, got old and, um, stayed with my parents and I would just hunt her on the weekends. And then I think it was about 19, maybe, boy, mid eighties. Um, I heard about a grouse trial at Mo at Morham around Moore in the remember of a forest where they still hold them today. And it was an early one might've been 1980 even. And, um, I went there and watched it. it was in the spring and jet train was there. who was a big champion at the time and all these other dogs. And there was Brittany handlers and I kind of watched that, but didn't really do it for me. You didn't see the dogs a lot. And I just, I just wasn't there at the time. Um, flash forward to about, 1987 um and i was start i had trained with a bunch of guys around the twin cities that had these english setters and um i mean at that time i just had a Brittany, and they turned me on to a guy named jack leclerc down in cannon falls minnesota who had these english setters and i ended up going down there and then buying a probably a nine-month-old dog from him um and he actually was the first dog we ever bred first male we ever bred. His name was Spring Garden Tollway. And um, that, that's kind of where, that was the first English setter I ever bought. Okay. So that's your, so that's your first setter. And you, at that point, you were, you were within a, within a group of guys that were kind of leading you along this path and you, you knew you wanted to get into grouse trials. And, and I know you, you ran those for quite a few years. I, I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't run so many grouse trials nowadays, but you, you did that for a while. And then at what point did you kind of say, you know what, let's, let's make a, you know, let's open up a kennel and, and 
breed professionally? Yeah, what what happened was about that. I got that first setter, like I said, I think in 1987, and then just hunted around for a couple of years, and then I got a pointer from a friend of mine named Steve Studer. Um, and started having some pointers. Um, I was calling, always looking for the setters, but this that first setter I had probably, you know, I wasn't nearly the trainer then, but he was a huge running dog. I mean, he was huge running dog. If you took him in Texas or North Dakota, I mean, I don't care if that field was a mile long. I mean, he just went and, you know, he found birds, but he probably ran more than he hunted. Um, <laughs> but you can hunt grouse over him and things. And anyways, but he was a special dog. When I, I watched a lot of other dogs and as he got older, he got better and better. Um, but he was just, he showed me what a dog could do other than just point birds. I mean, he was such an athlete and said so much endurance and things like that. I mean, I ran him in a few grouse trials, but he was always, you just, you never saw him. I mean, he was always out front. You never lost him, but you just didn't see him enough. When I hunted him, my beepers had just come out and I used the beeper on him and I would just walk big old roads and he'd cover the rest, you know, <laughs> um, so that worked out and he kind of, I ran him in a few trials, actually a plan of bird trials at the Crowhass and Park Reserve. And he placed in some of those and that kind of got a typical story of a field trial. You get a, you get a little bit of success. Um, and then it keeps bringing you back. I, I like to equate the field trials, but like a slot machines, they're all geared up so that you win just enough <laughs> to keep you really coming back. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. So, okay. So, so then how did, how did that lead into, uh, you know, walk me, walk me through the rest of it. Okay. Um, what happened was I, I started running some pointers and we had a dog called dance smartly that we were really successful with. Um, and she was one won our first cross championship with her. And then I, I bought a setter female who actually came from, uh, Jack LeClaire spring garden kennels too, but it from through a different guy. Um, and at the time I thought, okay, I need to breed this dog to a really good dog. And I sent her out to Grouse Ridge Kennels to Grouse Ridge Ben at the time. And, um, she didn't, she never did take. And so she didn't have pups. I'm not sure what happened there. And, and in the meantime, um, this is leading up to about 1995, I bought quite a few dogs. I mean, I had five or six dogs at a time, setters and pointers. I bought the top dogs I could get anywhere and they just didn't work out. Um, finally, after about six years of doing that, I finally said, I'm just going to take this female and bring it to my old dog, Charlie, who ran all over, um, and see what happens. You know, I can't buy one, so let's just see. Well, out of that litter, we got a dog called Blue Streak and a dog called Blue Smoke. Um, and Blue Smoke was a very, was a successful dog. He won the Minnesota Grouse Championship and he won the Pennsylvania All Age. Um, but his sister, Blue, China, Blue Streak, um, she won the Minnesota Grouse Championship once and was runner-up twice. She won the Wisconsin Woodcock Championship. She got runner-up in the Grand National Grouse Championship when she was 10 and a half years old, and she was the uh, top cover dog of the year, I think, in 2003. Um, and that kind of started us right there. It was the first litter we ever bred. Um, it was in 2000, or 1995, I take that back. And that, that kind of started it. And then that, um, Betsy and I were together at that point. And so that was our first litter. And kind of from there, we went on. We were still field trialing pretty heavy then. So we didn't do a lot. We maybe did one litter every other year um, with the dogs we competed with. 
So that kind of that's how we started breeding. Yeah, yeah, perfect, perfect. Thanks for the thanks for the history lesson there. I I knew some of it just from kind of perusing your blog over the over the past few years and that and that sort of stuff. But I I find it interesting and and you know now today obviously 2018 you own and own and operate with Betsy uh, Northwoods Bird Dogs and just. Te- Tell us, just kind of give us the top, the overview of, of what specifically you do today. You breed dogs for, for upland bird hunters, pretty much. Pretty much, yep. I mean, people ask, oh, I don't want a field trial dog, or some guys want to call you and they want a field trial dog. And, and really, we say we don't breed field trial dogs. We breed good dogs. And I think that, and Betsy agrees, that a really good dog will do whatever the owner wants. You know, if they want to, if they want to be with you and they want to hunt for you and they, and they have all the physical tools and they're mentally sound and things like that. If you're, if you want a field trial, you train a little different you encourage them to get out further and you encourage his independence and things like that. Um, and if you don't, you just, you know, keep them closer and you kind of, you know, you just work with them that way. So they, you don't let them go out as far. You call them back when he gets out too far and things like that. And, um, so that's what we do. We breed, we're just trying to breed good English setters and we breed pointers too. Um, that would work for anybody. And we want, we want the whole package. I mean, we want, I want the style in motion. I want an easy gate with endurance. I want accurate nose. I want a great personality. I want intelligence. You know, I mean, we want it all. And then I also want a dog that when I'm even though they're not all house dogs, when I'm in the kennel, which is a lot of time of the day, I don't want them barking and running up and down and, you know, just being a pain in the butt. So that that's what we do. That's basically what we do now. I mean, then we'll train some of those. We train some of the dogs for clients that buy them and we keep puppies out of every litter and we start those and sell those. And, uh, you know, in a nutshell, that's what we do. We breed and we train at this stage. We really do very little field trial and it. It just doesn't work on our schedule. And it's, it's just not something that we feel like, Hey, we've done that. Now for our clients do that or somebody buys a dog, that's great. And we encourage it but I just don't have, it's a lot of effort and I just don't have that kind of fire anymore. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, you've, you've, uh, you've, you've been around the block a time or two and, and seen a lot of stuff and you kind of, you know, I feel like you, you, you know, where your specialties lie and, and, and you do that and it's, uh, it's working well for you. And, and, uh, it's certainly appreciated by me as, as somebody that owns one of your dogs for sure. Um, talk a little bit about, a little bit about your, your general training methodology, because we, we kind of touched on it. I mean, exposure to wild birds is something that you always instilled in me when I was asking you, you those questions as a, as a first time, you know, dog owner was basically get, get the dog in the woods on wild birds as much as you can and pretty much shut up. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the kind of thing. I mean, a, a bird dog, you know, the training of a bird dog, let's say a setter for sure, or a pointer even, I mean, the only training you really do, it's not in the, in the realm of dog training, it's pretty low as, to, as far as uh, what you need to do. I mean, all we need to do, they need to come when you call them. They need to stop when we tell them to. I mean, and, and if they do nothing else, then you just take them out and walk behind them and let them learn. And if you have a good bird dog, I mean, they'll have enough instinct to hunt, and they're all going to point, you know, some point sooner, some point later, but they're all going to point. And, um I mean, that's just the way to do it. We believe in, we start them out really young. We start out, with the, it starts with the female. You got to have the right female and you got to have the right care and nutrition and, and the right kind of temperament in a, in a female. And then when she has those puppies, we do the super puppy from 
day three through day 16, which is, uh, you can Google that, but it's just a little series of five exercises to do for five seconds each with each puppy every day. And um, we move into, we do clicker training with them then, let's say from eight to 12, just teaching them to wool on a clicker and go to a place, um, come when you call them, things like that, go into a kennel. Um, and then by about 12 to 14 weeks, we start them on birds. And and we really never look back. We don't really immerse them in birds at that stage, but I'd say a couple times a week, moving to three times a week, by the time they're five, four or five months old, and then just keep that up until we can start. And we'll do that with quail and pigeons and releasers, you know, recall quail. Um, and then as soon as they get to be old enough and the time opens on wild birds, you just take them out and let them learn. I mean, the thing you can do with a young dog is, and if they'll come when you call them and you've made a buddy of them and, you know, they're going to stay with you, just take them out for the first year. They know you'll know more than them. And after that, they'll know more than you about finding birds. <laughs> yep. That is, that is, that has certainly been, been my experience. Kind of a, a offshoot there. You mentioned clicker training. Have you been doing that for uh, a length of time? Is that something new? Cause I, I kind of got exposed to it early and, and definitely had some se- success with it. I, I wasn't like terribly dedicated to it, but I read articles in like Pointy Dog Journal from George Hickox, and I know he's a big advocate of that. So it, it, I, I, I found that it works very well in, in certainly marking the behaviors and getting a quick response from the dog. Has that been your experience? Yeah, I mean, we've we've always, you know, over the years, I've always used treats. When I'd say kennel, I'd throw a treat in there and stuff. But I, I've, I've switched over to the clicker training Partly because it just it makes the dog think, and it slowed me down a lot for the responses. Um, and it, it, yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's a great thing. It's, there's no doubt about it. I mean, it, it just fits into what we like to do. I mean, we have little pups. I try I try never to pick them up and do things and put them in a kennel. I always want them to go in the kennel on their own. You know, I mean, I want them to do something. They, if I put them in there, they really didn't learn anything. But if if I can teach them to go in there um, for a treat you know, with a click, Hey, that's, that's the greatest way to do it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, it's, you know, it's funny because I'm, I Hartley's my first dog and I've, you know, I've learned a ton just in the first few years. And I, I think about, you know, when I, when I will get my next one and, you know, really it was, it was, I was, I was like apprehensive about thinking that any little mistake I made was going to, was going to ruin the dog forever. Uh, You know, I was kind of worried about that stuff, but they're, they're incredibly resilient and they are, they are very smart. So if you just set up the right circumstances, you know, it's, you can really, you really don't have to do a whole lot. Oh, you're right there. I mean, and a, and a, and a good dog and a well-bred dog is, and they, even all of them, but the better, the better the dog, the more resilient they are. Yeah. And they're so smart. I mean, what I've learned when I first started training, I mean, I kind of taught my goal is to be a better trainer every year. Right. And, um, what I know now and what I knew 15 or 20 years ago, I mean, it's, it's just very different. And yet I don't know, I don't know at all by any means. Um, but dogs are very smart. And if you can communicate what you want, they can learn things in a way that they can understand. They can learn things so fast. It just blows me away. Yeah, absolutely. And I think yeah, that's, that's really the key. And obviously somebody, somebody like you that sees so many different dogs over and over again, you have, you, you, you're able to read, you know, read and, and timing is so critical. You can, you can have, have obviously mastered that, that 
communication, you know, more so than, than average Joe trainer, but it is there for everybody. And, and with the right timing and the right techniques, they, yeah, they can absolutely learn. I've, I've even seen some of that. So very cool. Well, let's, let's segue and transition a little bit because I want to talk about grouse dogs specifically because it's uh, probably, probably something that, that anybody that hunts grouse could, could talk about all day. But do you have it, you know, I, I hate to get so specific and try to throw a, th- throw a label on, on, you know, a particular thing, but it's just, it's such an interesting conversation. Do you have a way that you personally quantify, qualify grouse dogs? I mean, how do you measure one dog against another dog? Can it be done? What's your, what's your theory on that? Um, well, there's so many facets you know, for a dog. I mean, the, the, the one common denominator that everyone likes to look at, you know, is bird finding. And then with, along with that and rough grouse goes bird handling. I mean, um, we've been fortunate to work dogs on lots of birds over lots of different parts of the country. And, um, I mean, the grouse are the toughest bird there is. So, you know, if you can do, if, I, if you have a dog that can do, and I don't mean a dog that, you know, after five years of hard work, it starts to point a few. I mean, a dog that, in its second season and probably in its first season as a puppy has the right kind of instincts to do that kind of thing. Um, bird finding, I mean, certainly would, would be one way you separate those dogs. Now, I mean, that's a hard thing to say unless, you know, generally speaking, somebody has more than one dog, they run their best dog at the best time, you know, and and maybe that's a self-fulfilling prophecy, maybe not, but, um, you know, when it comes to breeding, there's other things to look at. I mean, if, if it was so simple that you bred the best bird finder to the best bird finder, there'd be a few more good dogs. It's kind of extrapolating that. If you bred a field trial grouse champion to a field trial grouse champion and all of them turned out to be that good, this would be an easy thing, but it, it's just not how it works. So you kind of got to, when you're looking, when I'm looking at a dog, I'm weighing a lot of factors. I'm weighing, you know, the way they cover their ground and the gate. I mean, I like a, I like I like a happy going dog. So I want the style, and I want them to be tall on point. Um, just little things, um, but ultimately it comes down to bird finding. You can have all those other things, and if you can't find enough birds, yeah, it really doesn't matter. Now, with that said, you might have a dog that's exceptional in some other regards, but just an average bird finder, and then you breed that to a really good bird finder. You know, so there's. It's hard to it's hard to quantify that. I mean, ultimately, everybody's going to brag about birds. How many how many birds are dog finds? And you know, and I guess in the end, that's the first yardstick. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you you kind of you nailed sort of my thoughts really in that it is so hard to quantify because I think I, it's my it's you know mental it's a tendency to want to think that it's black and white in a sense like. Okay, we came out here, you know, we hunted this cover last week and the dog pointed three birds. Well, we came out here this week and a different dog pointed one bird. So, you know, your brain wants to say, well, three is better than one. So the first dog is better than the second. But that's obviously, it's you can't say that because it's, you know, it's different conditions. The wind is different. The moisture in the air is different. And and scenting scenting is not a, a black and white thing. So how do you... I guess let's, let's talk a little bit about, let's talk a little bit about nose and, you know, are there, how do you, how do you compare, you know, one nose to another nose given all those different conditions? I mean, at any given day, I mean, it's, it's totally random, but 
over time, and if you work, if you run a dog enough, or several dogs, you know enough, the the better nosed dogs will start rising to the top because they just flat out find they'll find more birds over time. Um, you may have the best dog you've ever had on a given day, and he might not look very good, but average that out over 15 or 20 days of hunting grouse, and it's a different story. Um, so, I mean, that you got to average it out. That's all I can. That's that's how I would look at it. I mean, approaching the bird. I mean, we're just talking about finding the birds, you know, and then handling them. You know, I mean, um, I wrote a blog about that not too long ago about the best nose, and I mean, I a dog needs to point the bird as close as it can get without flushing it. And that, and that, whether that be a rough grouse or a bobwhite quail in Georgia or a Mern's quail in Arizona, you know, or a sharp-tailed grouse in the prairies. I mean, it's, and they all vary. And again, but with the rough grouse, you know, requiring the most distance in general from the bird. So. Yeah, that's, uh, okay, perfect. I have, I have the, your blog pulled up next to me on my computer screen because I wanted to make sure that, that we hit on that and, you wrote kind of the opening paragraph is is that some people you know i don't know if you're referring to field trial judges or, or anybody really could you know sometimes they judge a dog by how far away does the bird flush from the nose when reality and i know this because i hunt a lot of grouse a dog that points a grouse too far away might not do you any good because that grouse is going to feel very comfortable kind of moseying off and, and running out. I mean, do you see a lot of that? And, and you really find that it's, it's the dogs that know exactly how close they can get. They point the most grouse. That, that's a hundred percent true. I mean, and there, and, and the, the, the side of that is the only way they learn that is by getting too close when they're young. And that's why when they're, when a dog is young, we always say the first season is for the dog, you know, let them find them and bump them. And, you know, if they point them great, shoot them. If they don't, let them learn because, you know, I haven't seen very few dogs. I mean, there are some, but I wouldn't count on it. They come out of it and just can do that, you know, right out. Most of them have to figure that out, you know, and you got, and if you want a grouse dog, you got to put them on grouse. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So, so good, good example there. Let's say, let's say a guy's got a, he's got a pup, you know, he's coming up, he just picked up a pup this spring or the summer and he's going to be out the first season that first season i don't necessarily want to go down to what are we looking for but how do how do you reward the dog you know number one i think is don't expect your dog to you know point a ton of grouse locked up solid you know steady to flush so how do you how do you reward the dog and, and are you okay shooting birds that it bumps is there anything that you're looking for specifically that you wouldn't shoot a bird you know obviously all things considered that it's a safe shot and everything like that Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's kind of a myth that, I mean, we used to say it early on, but I mean, don't shoot birds, your dog doesn't point. And I think that that's pretty true, but it certainly doesn't hurt to shoot a few birds that your dog doesn't point if it's right there and knows what happened, just to kind of give them the idea that, you know what, this is what we're after. Um, but I wouldn't make it, you know, if you did that a couple, three birds for a young dog and they went in on it, I wouldn't. I'd back off at that point, and I, I just wouldn't point. I wouldn't shoot what they don't point, and just let them. They need to learn to handle the birds. And surprisingly enough, when they're young, if you get them at you know, say they're six to nine months old, a lot of them are cautious enough, a little bit cautious enough yet. Um, they'll point some. They'll point some birds, but um, 
you kind of got to give that that first season to the dog, just you know, and it'll it'll repay itself many 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 times over. But if you start trying to make it perfect as a puppy, I mean, and you make some mistakes with that and make the dog, you know, worry about getting too close. I mean, those are problems you'll have for a long time. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Uh, okay. So, so we hit on, we hit on nose a little bit there. So kind of along that same thread, you also not too long ago wrote a, uh, I thought, I thought, thought a very interesting blog about unproductive points. Talk a little bit about about unproductive points, sort of what causes them, and what we can, what if anything, we can glean from them, and and how to approach them. Um, yeah, I mean, unproductives. I mean, let's talk about rough grouse. Um, they kind of go with the territory, um, but what I, you know, because they can't get right on a grouse. I mean, a bobwhite quail. I mean, whether it be Texas or Georgia or something like that, they're not. They'll let a dog, I mean, you'll see a dog, and sometimes, not every time, but you'll see them in the middle of a covey, you know, pointing, and the birds get up all around them. And um, you're rarely going to see that with a grouse, even on, you know, on a single grouse. You might, you might get it occasionally, but they just need to learn, you know, how close is too close, I guess. And, and that's, that's ultimately what you have to let them learn. Yeah, and so I think I think if I remember correctly from from that article, there was you know there was kind of an interesting study about you know the the dogs were it was, they were talking about field trials I think and the dogs were being you know they're they're basically they only score if if birds get up but these I think the study was able to kind of go in and see that oftentimes the dogs were pointing birds they just they weren't able to flush because they I don't know if they moved out or whatever but. If your dog's on point, I mean, there, there, you know, it could be, could be old scent. I mean, how old do you think the scent could really be? Obviously, dependent on conditions. Um, I can tell you that years and years ago, when I had that Brittany, um, it was maybe a December or November. It was snow on the ground when I was hunting grouse, and there was a little bit of snow on the ground, and then there was a little, maybe an inch of fresh snow that night, and there was grouse tracks you could see that were in that old must have melted a little bit and there were the grouse tracks in that old snow and that little inch of snow was kind of covering it i'm assuming it was from the day before and that Brittany of mine was was following those tracks i mean one by one by one by one by one yeah. um so that it can be pretty old um you know the thing on the grouse woods is when you're hunting quail again or birds in the open you see birds lift way out there and fly you know and sure. then your dog goes over there and points and you go, ah, you know, you just move them on because you know the bird left. Well, I think the same thing happens in the woods. The birds are leaving like that, but you just, you don't see them and the, you just don't see it happen in the woods, but they're, they're doing it. And so like, again, it comes, it comes with the territory and you'll find that I don't know a lot about dogs that I could say for sure. But one thing I can say for sure is almost every dog will get more cautious with age, which is why I like a, a, a young dog that's a little more aggressive on birds because they will get more cautious with age. And it's just going to happen on the grouse. You don't know it left. And, I mean, it could be off game. It could be something else. But let's just assume it's not a rabbit. It's not a squirrel. That grouse could have been there, you know, a minute ago five minutes ago and then ran off or flushed and your dog's going to point there. And, you know, a young dog probably wouldn't do that, but you get to be a five, six, seven, eight year old dog and you're going to see it. And 
you see it especially on, you know, really low grouse population years, um, even with good aggressive dogs. I mean, those birds that are left are really, they're, they're wild and they're smart and they're just not waiting around. So it's just a matter of how many is too many. And, and I say that three out of ten points unproductive, I'd say I'm good with that. You know, I'm talking on average now, you know, I mean, on a yeah, specific yeah, day, yeah. it might be more or less. But I'd say that I would be happy with a dog that overall, if he points 10 times, 7 times, the grouse is there. Cool. Cool. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. You know, that, again, that, I think it leads right into that, you know, in my, my first couple of years and, and I talked about, you know, you're, you're trying, your brain is trying to compare, always trying to compare, at least mine is, I don't speak for everybody, but trying to compare situation A from situation B and, and I'm kind of over that now because I have seen enough, I've seen enough grouse sneak out, you know, if you spend enough time in the woods, you'll see it where I actually recall one time last spring we were hunting and uh, Hartley went on point and I got the notification on GPS, I think. So I'm making my way to the dog and I just about stepped on a grouse. I was kind of in this long grass. I just about stepped on a grouse. It flushed out and Hartley was still on point. So I wasn't quite sure what was going on. So I, I, I moved all the way in, found the dog. There was no bird there. I circled around a little bit and I picked up a track and you know, I released Hartley by this time, so he's off looking. And I picked up this track, and I followed the track right back, you know, out basically out from underneath his nose, and all the way back to where I stepped on that growl. So I could, I could see that the path that it took to to run out from his nose and, and escape from him, and I just so happened to intersect it. But had I come in from the other way, we might never have seen that bird. Exactly. And I've had dogs point birds. Um, in the fall and, and point and point and point and point and several times. And I mean, and those birds, I think what they do a lot of times and in the spring, they do it a ton, especially the males, but they don't really want to leave an area and they just stay like a rabbit. They just, they'll run big circles around you and the dog will just keep pointing and pointing and pointing. And some of them just, I mean, they don't really leave and maybe eventually they do, but I mean, they'll run out, they'll run around and they don't want to, you know, they don't want to leave an area that they know that they feel secure. So. Yeah, it it's uh, it it they they keep you guessing and and it's really yeah I think it's I think it's what what keeps me coming back that's for sure because it is it is so much fun and and you know when the dog when the dog does have success and and they get that they get that perfect point you walk in and flush a grouse it's it's something else it's pretty fun. Yeah, it's I mean they're, they're a challenge and that's why it really never gets old because they're 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 everyone is different. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Now, I guess a little bit on that, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about running grouse and, and uh, every once in a while, I, you, I hear, you know, you hear like a, an old wives tale or somebody talking that their, their dog has figured out how to circle ahead and cut off a grouse and, and, and pin them. Do you, do you see that? Do you buy into that? Do dogs get lucky? I mean, certainly some dogs, you know, they learn, but, but do you see dogs that, that really learn to track and, and pin grouse in, in a certain way? Um, you know, as far as circling and doing that, I mean, I, I guess I've never seen it on a grouse, um, but I have seen that on, you know, in Texas quail. Um, and I have, I've heard of clients tell me I've never really seen it on a pheasant, but I've seen dogs do it on quail, um, where they'll point and those birds are, you know, running in sparse, that sparse West Texas cover and they're running out there and the dog sees them and he'll make a big old circle 
and basically cut the birds off. And I mean, and that this particular dog was going point. Like I mean, he was now looking at the birds, you know, downwind. Sure. Yep. That he would stand. He would stand there. I mean, and I don't think he saw him at that point. Maybe he judged by this, you know, descent originally, and he would look like he's on point. I mean, um, it can happen. I think it's a little less likely to happen on grouse. Just I've never seen one do it on grouse. Um, just because grouse are a little more touchy, and I think personally, I wouldn't want a dog to try that because I think the I think the margin of error on grouse is just too it's just too great. Um, they start fooling with it that way. I mean, I've had dogs. I have I've seen dogs that try to circle birds grouse and some other birds too and it's never the ones i've seen have never been very successful not on grouse yeah. for sure yeah so yeah interesting that's just something i had something i'd heard wanted to get your take on it as you you know spent spent uh spent a lot of time in the grouse woods for sure now i i, I segueing off that a little bit something that i have really experimented with over the last couple of years and have have found quite interesting is not uh, related to the dog, but related to my approach to a point. And this is something that I, I don't think I really thought about it much from, you know, in the early stages, but now I'm a, I'm a big believer in that the way that I approach a point can really influence the productivity and the types of flushes that I see. Do you have a, do you have a specific way that you like to approach points specifically in the grouse woods? Um, you know, I mean, it, it depends. I mean, if I'm hunting by myself or hunting with somebody, I'll kind of, I'll kind of go out and do a semi-circle back, okay. But all the while looking at the likely place you're gonna, you know, you you think a grouse could actually stop in, you know, yeah. to get a shot at it. Now, when we're guiding guided hunts, usually there's two hunters and I'm in the back. You know, I try to tell them to do that thing, but most of them, most of them even after years and years, will go up to the dog and kind of stop and kind of go up the dog's nose and and it invariably stop too soon. I mean, you can't, you can't go too far. I mean, what I like to say to the guys on guide, I said, when, when did you walk past the grouse and have a get up behind you? Yeah. <laughs> never. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe once. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. you want to get out there. And I think the best approach, if I'm doing it, is to, is to, is to go wide of the dog. And like I said, come into the front. I don't like to so much start going toward the dog, but I like that I would come. And if I don't flush a grouse and let's say, 30 yards probably would be what I'd go, um, max. Then I would start working back toward the dog, you know, right right into him that way. And maybe it's a woodcock, you know, maybe it's a close-sitting bird. You know, if it's going to sit, you can walk by it and come back. If it's going to run, you better get out there. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So that's, I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to influence your answer too much, but that's, that's really kind of what I've been experimenting with and doing it. And for that same reason, you know, if a dog has say a woodcock or even a grouse, if he's got a pin, that bird is comfortable there. It's going to stay there. It's going to be there whether or not, you know, if you, if you circle out ahead and, and, you know, play the odds that, that it is a grouse and he ran out a little bit and you're going to catch him, you're going to catch him out there as opposed to coming right up the dog's flank and stopping in front of his nose. I, I have done enough of that and I've seen, you know, I've seen grouse flush out ahead of me low and away. And, and it's interesting because I, I really just started doing it almost by accident when I had in the spring and I, I wanted to get pictures of Hartley on point. I wanted to get pictures of my dog. So I kind of started doing it, but I didn't do it you know, on every point that I could. 
until uh, another grouse hunter kind of through a friend of a friend, he, he said that that's how he approaches every point, and he finds he gets really good opportunities by circling, you know, going wide of the dog, circling, and trying to cut that grouse off. And now I've started doing it a lot, and, yeah, it's a, it's, I think it's a very effective technique. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think that's the way to do it. I mean, that's let's just say that that's the way I think that puts the odds most in your favor. Yeah, yeah, and and, and it's funny you mentioned you know it, it's it's really is a tendency, especially if you're I think if you're just starting out or you don't know any better, uh, to walk right up right up you know behind the dog. You know you want to you want to believe that the bird is sitting right there off his nose and and oftentimes there you know there is a woodcock and sometimes there's a grouse right there and and everything plays out perfectly and you're you're ahead of the dog and you're shooting you know and there's there's nothing out in front of you and it's perfect but but we know that that grouse don't don't play fair and and they don't let it happen that way too often no no you got you got that right and like i said i've kind of funny because even during the guided hunts with guys i've been guiding for years and years and years and years they'll still walk up to the dog and kind of stop you know i mean uh, it just must be a natural tendency i said i've got a motto and i said here's the deal i said when the dog is stopped you better be moving <laughs> when he starts <laughs> yep. moving you stop yep that's you know what that's a that's that's a pretty good way to do it because it's you can you can read that dog when he's when he's out ahead of you when he's moving you know stop pay attention see what he's doing see where he's working and and when he stops get up there fast mm-hmm. exactly uh all right so let's i guess i want to uh we won't jump right into that but let's talk about you know when you you have clients calling you up for dogs and let's say they're let's say they're just starting out because i feel like we have a lot of people that listen to this podcast that are you know, a lot of people have been doing, have been up on hunting for a long time, but there's a lot of people out there that that are just getting their dogs. What are what are the you know the most common questions that you get asked, and and maybe maybe some of the common mistakes that you see beginners make, or or things that that you suggest they do. Um, I mean, a common question that almost always, 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 always comes up is the dog's range, and. Sometimes people are coming from flushing dogs or they had a lab. It's not uncommon for us to get people maybe in their 60s and older that used to hunt over labs, but now they don't move, don't want to move that fast, and so they want a bird dog, but they're talking about how far does the dog range. And I'd say that's that's the biggest question we get. And, I mean, you know, I say, well, what, what do you want for range? They say, well, I'd like 40 or 50 yards. And I say, well, I say, that's, that might not be, that might not work out. I said, for one thing. Uh, it depends on when you're talking. Um, you know, range is an early thick September cover. Yeah, the dog might be 50 or 75 yards, but by the late October and November, the dog might be 100 yards or 150 yards. Um, part of that is controlled. You know, you can control. Um, but I'd say that's that's one of the biggest questions we get is just about the dog's range. Yeah, I have, I have, I have range with a question mark sitting next year on my notepad. I didn't ask you that, so I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. And I feel like I see that I, that question is, is debated over and over again on whether it's on Facebook groups or, wherever. And, and I feel like a common answer that you see, and, and you kind of touched on it, is that really a dog should be, it shouldn't have. We always want to put numbers to it, but it shouldn't necessarily be a specific number. It, the dog should be adapting to the cover and and to the handler 
Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, that's like some people say, well, a 75-yard dog, well, what's that? I mean, I don't have any dog that stays at 75 yards all the time. I mean, I like to say, as far as the range goes, I mean, our dogs will cast out to the left or to the right and work a certain distance depending on the cover. And let's say you're walking a trail in the grouse woods, and then they'll slowly start crossing back. They'll cross the trail and kind of look back at you and cross it in the other side and just kind of keep hunting, you know. And and it's not like they're quartering. They may hunt some over there for you know, 75 or 150 yards before they cross again, you know, but, um, so what is that? I mean, he might be 150 yards at the farthest and he might cross in front of me at 40. So what kind of range is that? I mean, as long as the dog wants to hunt with you and, and, and also wants to find birds, I mean, range is a moot point and, and the fact that they hold point. A lot of people are paranoid because they maybe had a point dog that didn't hold point very well. So they want to make sure that even if the dog's bumps the bird they get a shot at it well that that's not a range problem you know that, that's a that's a staunchness problem so yeah yeah exactly yeah i think it's i think it's you know, again we we go back to the we default on those numbers so often when really we're we're really talking about something else we're talking about the dog's adaptability and and checking in and again like you said staunchness on point let's let's talk checking checking in a little bit Obviously, the dog hunting for the handler is huge because if you have a dog that's self-hunting or out there doing his own thing, maybe he's ripping birds out, that's not going to be fun for – it'll be fun for the dog, but but probably not the guy guy chasing after the dog. Is there a way that you influence – a dog checking in or is that something that's built into them more? Is it, you know, is it more the dog hunting for the handler and that's just genetic? Um, there's a lot of genetics to it. Um, I mean, the easiest way to, I mean, you can train a dog to range just about whatever you want. If you put enough effort into it, (laughs) but therein lies the thing. Most, most hunters aren't dog trainers and, and they shouldn't have to be. Um, but that range is is a genetic is a genetic thing. I mean, if you take a dog that's a that genetic genetically is programmed to to hunt three or four hundred yards, and you try to bring that dog in, I mean, you're going to have some issues. Um, you now, if you get a dog that is genetically a hundred yard dog, or a hundred and fifty yard dog, or a seventy five yard dog, you can shorten that dog up a lot easier. You know, I mean, and what checking in really is is, I mean, the dog has a little clock in his head. And for some reason, this is just naturally, you know, certain dogs check in with certain frequencies. And that's why even before the beepers and all that, we had talked to some of the old timers and stuff. I mean, you're watching your dog hunt and he's hunting, hunting. All of a sudden he casts one way in a little while. You think, hmm, he hasn't shown up yet. He must be on point over there because you're kind of in sync with his clock too. And then the easiest way to do it is, is to have the genetic clock about what you want. Um, it can be modified a little bit again. I mean, you might make a 150-yard dog into a 75-yard dog, but you're not going to take a 300-yard dog and make him into a necessarily a 100-yard dog, not without a lot of effort. And he might not be very happy, and you might not be very happy. Yeah, yeah. I've, I, I've, I think that's been one of the most interesting things for me as a, as a first-time bird dog owner, not having a ton of experience with bird dogs prior to that. And they, they, none of them were mine, so I was not their primary handler. But just the ability and the desire of, of my dog, Hartley, to want to hunt, you know, want to stay with me, and then his ability to, you know, because 
he's he's hunting. When we're in the woods, he's hunting, but he's got that clock in his head, like you said, and he'll come and check in, and he wants to make sure that I'm with him. You know, if I'm if he hasn't seen me for a while, he wants to find me, and we want to keep hunting. But it's really I, I just I just find it so interesting to see how hard they will hunt for you, and and you know you have that relationship, and man, it's pretty it's pretty special, I think. I mean, and that is, I mean, if I have to put that onto one thing, I mean, that's the only one thing you can discover in a dog on wild birds, whether it be walking quail or out in the prairie or in the grouse woods. It's really important in the grouse woods because you can't control much. A lot, a lot of the stuff you can't see, so you got to rely on them to do their, to do their thing. Um, but that's where wild birds, I mean, you can train a dog, you can put a dog on birds in five acres, and you can do all these different things. But what's really important in a wild bird dog, I think, for a walking hunter, is that it has that. And there's only one way to find out if they have that. You know, if they're distracted more by deer or by rabbits, or they'd rather hunt more than they would rather pay attention to you. Um, it's a huge factor. Again, and that, that's a genetic trait that in a grouse dog is just is, is, is tremendous. Yeah, definitely. So we've been talking a lot about a lot about pointing dogs, and I don't think one of us has said the word "whoa" yet. You mentioned earlier that uh, you know we're, we don't we don't have to train the dogs much, but but one of them is to stop when we when we want them to. So in a sense, you reference "whoa," but how do you go about how do you go about training uh, the "whoa" command specifically, and then and then we'll talk a little bit about steadiness that you look for in your dogs. Um. You know, it's kind of an evolving thing with me. Um, when I used to do the treats, and even when I started the clicker training, I never really did woe with that. But I've been fooling around with that now to get them clicker trained on woe just to teach the command when they're young, even though they don't stand there very long. You know, you kind of start, like all the clicker training, you start, you make them stand there maybe for a count of 1,000, and then you click and let them go and treat them, and you make it a little longer and a little longer. But um, I think that, you know, for a one-dog owner and stuff, I think the old-fashioned blowing them before you feed them or throwing a treat out there and holding them and woeing them and starting like that just to show them what you want is a great thing. Um, and that's if you start with a young dog. Now, when I get dogs in for training, um, I almost exclusively train them to woe with a flank e-collar. Um, and I like to use – the only e-collar I'll use for that is a – graduated intensity not not a not a one two three four five but like a dog from one that goes from zero to 126 by one yeah um yeah. e-collar technologies makes one i like it's really small it's the same thing it's got a dial um and essentially the way you get the, the way you teach a dog the right way to do it is you get the behavior and then you put a word on it so what i do is i'll start i'll put that flank collar on the dog i'll walk them down the road and i'll put it at a very, very low intensity, so low they can't even feel it. And then I'll stop and have the dog on a lead and I'll stop. As soon as I stop, I let up on the intensity. And I just, I'll just do that low but sure until you, and so, and I'll start moving up in the intensity so you can see them just feel it a little bit. And as soon as they start stopping with that, that continuous stimulation, very, very low. They shouldn't, if it's, if you're doing it right, they're not reacting. They're not spinning around looking back or anything like that. Um, and then once, once I get them to stop actually on just, just the stimulation, then I'll start overlaying the word whoa just before I press the stimulation button. And it all becomes one. And, and it's, again, if your timing is really good and you're doing that the right way, it is amazing how fast they learn. And then 
once you have that collar on their flank, you can take them to whatever level, and you and you get the step, you know, so they understand it. You can take them to whatever level of steadiness you want. And that that's pretty much the way I do it anymore. It's just it's strictly with the collar on the flank. Yeah, that's that's something that that I picked up from you early on. I, I knew that you did that, and and I. I've done it a little bit. I'm going to do it again this summer and kind of do a little tune-up. You know, we uh, as as we go through hunting season, I'm probably like a lot of a lot of typical upland hunters. Maybe we, we let a few things slide when the when the when the birds are in there. But I I used the flank collar with very very good success last spring and had Hartley steady to steady to flush, steady to wing on on grouse and woodcock, and it was really cool to see. Along those lines. What do you ask of your dogs in, you know, in hunting scenarios, whether it's you hunting or whether it's your clients? Are they steady to wing and shot? Um, actually, it's, it varies. You know, on the Georgia plantation hunts, it's a horseback and a mule wagon, the whole deal, and they have retrievers. And down there, all the dogs are steady to wing and shot and kill. Um, but in the grouse woods, um, generally for me, I'll waffle a little bit between, they definitely can't go at wing, you know, because I don't want them getting in the, out in the way of somebody's shooting opportunity or something like that. But a lot of times in the grouse woods, I'll let them go at shot, um, just because they get to the bird faster and, and, and then you're not putting so much pressure on them to point perfectly every time. I, it's more important to me they point the bird right than that they're perfectly steady on it, you know, to, to shot or anything like that. So yep. that's, we kind of do both, and it, I'll tell you a funny story about that. Dogs are, again, they're really smart. Um, we have a client that hunts in Georgia, and he comes down. We basically have his dogs during the winter, and he comes and hunts several times, and he also hunts in Montana. Well, in Montana, the dogs will go, when he shoots, when, he, when the birds flush, I think they're gone. I mean, they're after the birds, even before the shot, right? And those dogs now, they've gotten to be four and five years old. We take those dogs from Montana put them on these plantation hunts and they go there and they and when those birds when those hunters walk in front and shoot i don't say a word out to those dogs don't move an inch <laughs> and they just know the difference wow so, dogs are smart yeah yeah absolutely yeah i think i think that's ultimately where where i would like to see hartley i think breaking on the shot in the grouse woods is is a is a really nice really nice balance because again uh, it's it's startling and exciting enough when a when a grouse gets up into the air so i think having that continuous point your dog you know where he's not breaking right at the flush or you know you know when they're young you see them that grouse is is frozen and they're they're on point, but that grouse will take a couple steps and then the dog and the grouse are going at the same time. I mean, that's that's a lot of chaos. I guess at least for me it was as as kind of a first time first time through. So I think steady to shot is is a nice nice balance, nice kind of in between. Do you have any tips or pointers for for getting to that point? You know, not letting your dog regress beyond that and. Obviously, if you have them steady to wing shot fall, that's one thing. But how do we how do we kind of stop them there and not let them regress too far? I mean, it's just it's just consistency, um, you know, and that's 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 the most important thing. You just if you're consistent with it, and usually usually steady, you know, steady to steady to shot, we'll call it where they go on shot. It isn't that difficult. I mean, I've had a lot of people ask me, not a lot, but I mean, enough people say, "Boy, I'd like to have them steady to shot." 
that he threw shot because sometimes there's more than one bird there. And I said, yeah. well, you better be really ready to put a lot of effort into it because there's a huge difference between going at shot and standing there. Um, I mean, a lot of effort. And you can do it, but you better be consistent because, again, they're smart and they know they know where your focus is. And they know that when you run them in the spring or something like that, it's like you have one eye on them, right, on the dog when you're doing your stuff, right? And when you're going out there and shooting, the dog knows that you have no eyes on them. You're, you're looking at the bird. So it has to be really ingrained habit to do, um, you know, to get them steady through shot. But if you're just consistent, you know, I mean, you have to be willing when they're young to maybe give up a few shots. If they screw it up, not the first year, I mean, that's not that's so important, but the second and third year when you're really trying to get them to the point you want to be, you have to be consistent and you have to be willing to give up a bird if the dog really does something wrong on that. And, and that's, that's the only way you can do it. Yeah. Perfect. That's, that's, that's helpful. And I think that, uh, that'll certainly, certainly ring true for a lot of people. Um, we're going to wrap up quickly. I've got one other thing to ask you, but I, I did want to want to ask you about this because I always remember you saying that you felt that it took four years to make a grouse dog and that, you know, you have your first year and then you got years two and three. And by the time that dog's four, you know, that's when he's, that's when he's stepping into his prime. And I know enough to know that a dog doesn't wake up one day and say, Oh, I'm four years old now. Everything's, I'm going to be perfect. I, I know that, but, but talk a little bit about that sort of time frame and, and what you've seen from dogs, you know, as they, as they sort of hit that point in their, in their hunting career and then what, what lies ahead. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just a progression. I mean, one of the things that's, unfortunate about a grouse dog and one of the reasons and also that makes it so difficult is it's such a short season and a dog only gets so much experience but if you go hunt quail in the south or you can go hunt different species um for a whole winter three or four or five months i mean that's a ton of experience now they're not grouse but they're still wild birds but you get a grouse dog i mean they're only getting out let's say i don't know i don't think many guys hunt 20 days I mean, there are guys, and some may hunt even more than that, but I'll bet your average grouse hunter, wow, that hunts a lot, maybe hunts 12 or 15 times. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, that's not that much. I mean, it's a lot, but it's still not that much. And those dogs just have to get enough bird contacts, and they'll get better and better and better. And, again, the more birds they find, not necessarily the sooner they come on because – it's also a factor of maturity in a dog. And if you look at the dog age, I mean, you know, that first year they're, they're young. And in the second year, is usually it's kind of a trouble year because they're now they're not just young, but they also think they know a whole bunch because they had that first year. <laughs> and then they come into that third year, they start putting things together. And then by that fourth year, that's when I like to say, and you don't get me wrong, you have a lot of successes all up and down, you know, through the yep. time from the puppy on. But by that fourth year, that's the time you start that dog cast out there, and he knows he knows what the cover like to smell the grouse hanging. So even though you turn him loose here in an old woods, he smelt that 15, 18-year-old aspen cut, you know, 100 yards away, and off he goes that way, you know. So not only can they handle the birds better, but they really know where to find them. And they're physically mature enough to just say, okay, I'm cool. I know what I'm doing. I know what's expected of me, and I'm happy doing it. And that's that's what comes, you know, you might get some sooner and you do get some later. Um, but that's kind of the age. If you put that as a, as a check mark and say, by four, I want them here. 
again, that doesn't mean you just let them sit in your house until he's age four. I mean, you've had to put them into birds and birds and birds and birds. But yeah. that is still is a pretty good age. And um, if you look to the old grouse literature and stuff way back when, I've kind of, I'm a collector of old dog training books. And um, they, even then, they say the same thing, and, I, and I, that just hasn't changed. Yeah, excellent. All right, two questions here, Jerry, before I let you go. And, uh, you know, we could, as we talked about before I we started recording, we could we could probably go on and on about this. But, one, you just mentioned books. So any any off the top of your head good uh, good book recommendations, whether they're, whether they're upland hunting or dog training, uh, you know, some favorite books? Um, you know, that's really hard because, um, there's, you know, if you ask 10, 10 guys how to train a dog, you're going to get 10 different ways, you know, and yeah. I think what's important is you you find a way that, that kind of resonates with you, whoever person is that has the dog, and kind of go with it, you know, I mean, there's a classical book. I, I really go back to probably the best book I've ever seen by C.B. Whitford, and it's called Training the Bird Dog. It was in the early 1900s, and that guy just nails it. I mean, he just nails it. He talks about anticipation and training. Now, they don't, you know, they teach the command. They didn't have e-collars back then, a lot of different things, but, but dogs haven't changed that much. And if anything, it's a little easier for us now. But um, that's still the best book I've ever had. I mean, Hunt Close by Jerome Robinson was written quite a while ago um i haven't really read ben o williams book but i think i think he's kind of right on the people that have told me about it say he just kind of lets them develop naturally um and i think that that's kind of the thing i mean if you again if you want a wild bird dog and you buy a well-bred dog that's been used for that the most important thing you can do is just take them hunt and let the dog learn Perfect. Perfect. And perfect segue into my kind of final question here. Let's say we got somebody listening that is maybe they're thinking about their first bird dog or maybe they're just thinking about their next bird dog, but they're not quite sure where to start. You know, no matter no matter the breed, no matter the style, pointer, flusher, what recommendations do you have for people that are that are seeking out their next dog? Well, I mean, I'd say if they're looking at buying a puppy, I mean, when you go to buy a puppy, unless you know the breeder and you know the parents and you've seen the dogs um you're you're not really buying a puppy you're buying the breeder so i'd say you want to go out and you want to meet that breeder and you want to really get an understanding of where they're coming from and what they do with their dogs and how they figure out which dogs they breed because when you go looking at litter puppies you know especially if you bring your family and you have a wife and kids or something i mean you're probably going to get one so you better make sure that you did your homework whatever breed it is I mean, that's what I would say. If you want a grouse dog, your highest odds are going to be finding somebody who's the parents of hunting grouse dog, which most important is the parents, very important are the grandparents, and not some name on a pedigree, but the actual dog and what they did. Um, that, that's what you want to do. You, you really have to vet the breeders because um, there's a lot of people out there that breed dogs, and, and some of them are really good and some of them aren't that good. So if you want a, if you want a good grouse hunting dog, you definitely want to get it from that have been used for that for several generations even better excellent excellent well thank you so much jerry i really enjoyed the conversation we appreciate you coming on the project upland podcast and sharing your wealth of knowledge you have an awesome website great pictures of your dogs and a really nice really good blog where you you update you do some dog training stuff and some some client updates and all kinds of fun stuff. People can check that out at northwoodsbirddogs.com. We'll throw a link to that in the, in the, uh, the show page. 
that's all I got for you, Jerry. Like I said, really appreciate it, and thank you for coming on tonight. You're very welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. It's always fun to talk about bird dogs. Likewise. Thanks again, Jerry. Take care. All right. You bet, Nick. And we did it. That's a wrap on another episode of the Project Upland Podcast. I am your host, Nick Larson, and I would like to personally thank you for listening to this episode of the show and remind you that we are brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Head over to projectupland.com. We've got a ton of great stuff for you over there. You can also contact us there. I would love to hear from you. Send me an email directly at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. We can talk about bird dogs, shotguns, hunting trips, future podcast guests. You let me know. Send me an email. And before the next episode of the show, don't forget to leave us a rating. Review the podcast. Subscribe to the podcast. Hit that little subscribe button and share the podcast. You could be the next winner of the Project Upland Gear Giveaway. That's it for this week. We'll see you on the next episode. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.